Morning, church. Good to see you. It's always a good day at Hudson First when we start a new preaching, teaching series. I'm super excited about uh, starting this one. If you start at the end of your Bible, the very last book in uh, the New Testament, in the whole Bible, is uh, the book of uh, Revelation. It's technically, it's the Revelation. Just before that is a little one-page, one-chapter book called uh, Jude, a little short letter. Just before that are uh, three letters or epistles written by the Apostle John, creatively named 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And uh, we're going to spend the next several weeks studying the first epistle of John. And we've called this series The Revolution for three reasons. And I want to share those with you today because I think you can appreciate them. The first one is because it's a little play on words. Uh, John wrote The Revelation. So John wrote this letter, so he named it The Revolution. Exactly. That's what I thought. That's the kind of response I thought you'd get, I'd get. It's kind of nerdy, goofy. It's, uh, it's not the main reason, but it's one of the three. The second reason that we call it The Revolution is because I told my wife, I told Lori, I said, sweetheart, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to, if it's okay with you, I'm going to use you and myself and our interactions as a couple as an analogy to describe the way that John wrote 1 John and the impossibility of out being able to outline it. To which she said, what in the world are you talking about? So here's the deal. I'm a very linear, rational thinker, right? It's just the way that I'm made. It's the way that I work. All you got to do is listen to two of my sermons and you got me figured out. All you have to do is ask me to explain something to you. Uh, whether it is something theological or it's something scientific or it's something, an event that happened yesterday or it's the meal that I had last evening, I'm going to give you a linear response. You, and so what I do is in my mind, my, my mind, out, things are outlined. Remember back for some of you, it was a long time ago, like me, back in school when you learned to outline things. And uh, there was a general introduction. And then for your major points, Roman numeral 1, 2, and 3, right? If you had supporting evidence or proof evidence under Roman numeral 1 or 2, you used the letters A, B, C. If you needed supporting stuff under A, you used the number 1, the number 2, the number 3. And so that's just the way that my whole brain works. No kidding. I'm, I'm not even, you know, pretending. That's the way I understand information. That's the way that I communicate it nice tight wrapped relevant points supporting evidence an illustration or two and boom there you got it my whole world is that way and so when you pair me with someone who's not linear like that if they're thinking they can really frustrate me and I can really make their life miserable now I'm, I'm older now I'm a pastor I'm a leader I've been doing this a long time I've actually learned how to avoid that and in honesty, honesty, I've learned to value people who are, who are non-linear and actually appreciate them. It's good for me to have them around me. I actually even envy sometimes those who are not linear. And so I've learned how to you know, leverage that and be able to work together. But when you're married to someone like that, it's a whole different level, right? Because it's not just a few hours a day. It's not just a project or something. It is, it is life. And so enter the one and only Lori Jarvis into my life, a rational thinker most of the time, but the least linear person that I've ever known. 
And God just smiled when he put us together. And over these past 36 and a half years, we've made him smile a lot. I'm linear, she's circular. I'm black and white, she's abstract. I'm right-handed, she's left-handed. You get the picture. So I'm going to give you an outline. Lori, on the other hand, out of her nonlinear nature, she's going to start in the middle of the story sometimes. She might start with Roman numeral number three and then go back and get Roman numeral number one and then summarize Roman numerals one and two and insert Roman numeral uh, one and three and insert Roman numeral two for the very first time. And so when we have conversations sometimes, I'm listening to her and it's like putting together, for me, a thousand piece jigsaw puzzle, right? Because I'm trying to get from point A to point B so I can get to point C because for me, I can't get to point C unless I go through point B. And she's zigzagging throughout the whole alphabet. And my head, my brain, she sees it, she sees it, she sees me. It looks, it's like I'm watching a ping pong match or, you know, trying to watch a, a hamster in a, in, a, in a wheel. And so the good news is she loves me. And so most of the time she has pity on me and she helps me and I love her. And, uh, and if the Lord hadn't given me to her, I wouldn't be here today. I'd be lost and uh, I would be really, really boring. But here's the deal. John is like Lori when he writes 1 John. It is impossible to outline this tiny letter and yet it is a masterpiece. What John does through this little tiny letter, five chapters, is that on four occasions, John makes his arguments in a circular fashion. He does it here, and he does it again, he does that four times. He's going to say something, and then he's going to circle back, and he's going to repeat himself. And when you're reading through 1 John, which I'd encourage you to do over these next several weeks, when you're reading through 1 John, you're going to say to yourself, hey, wait a minute, didn't I just read that? And the answer is, yes, you did. So when I was talking with the staff about this new series, which is something that we do, I get a lot of great insight, a lot of great ideas from them, talking about the direction that we're going, and uh, we usually brainstorm the, the series title. And so when I explained how John uses these four revolving, spiraling arguments, these four revolutions, then I get to the end of that and I give them several ideas for what I think the title for the series could be, and they didn't like any of them. They said, it's got to be called the revolution. So that's the reason number two, that we landed on this title for the series. But the third, and the best one of all, is that John is an example of the revolutionary transformation that Jesus Christ can make in a person's life. And he's going to make a case for how his life was changed, revolutionized by Jesus, and more importantly, how the very same thing can happen for us. And that is my sincere prayer. As we tear this little letter apart, that God will use this truth and his power to intersect in our lives and bring revolution to you. And in doing so, bring revolution to your family. And from your family to us collectively as the body of Christ. And on into your workplace and on into this community and world. 
on five different occasions in this letter, John is going to say, I'm proclaiming this to you so that, or I'm writing this to you so that you can know something for sure, or so that you can experience something for yourself. Now, when we talk about John, this is the John who was one of the first disciples that Jesus invited to follow him. This is the John who had a brother named James, who was also a disciple. This is not the, uh, that's not the James that wrote the letter that's in the New Testament. That was James, the brother of Jesus. This is James, the brother of <clears throat> John. The Bible tells us that their dad's name was Zebedee. He was a businessman. He had a, he had a fishing business. This is the John that was part of, the, of Jesus' inner circle. There were 12 disciples, but Peter, James, and John were the leadership team. John and James and Peter were with Jesus without the other nine disciples the day that Jesus raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were with Jesus without the others the day that Jesus was transfigured on that mountain and had that conversation with Moses and Elijah. This is the the John that's in that uh, leadership group and Peter and James, who were with Jesus in close proximity uh, with him that night in the Garden of Gethsemane when he poured out his heart to the Father before he was arrested to be crucified. He wrote a gospel, the Gospel of John. He wrote these three letters, and he wrote the Revelation. And this is the John that was standing at the cross the day that Jesus was crucified. And from the cross, Jesus commissions John to take Mary, his, Jesus' mother, and care for her for the rest of her life. And John did exactly that. They relocated to Ephesus, where John uh, uh, eventually died. That's where he's buried. And this is the John that you're going to see in a moment and all throughout this series that with his own eyes saw Jesus dead, saw him buried sealed in a tomb, and then saw him raised from the dead. And that changed John. And that changed everything about Jesus to John. And that changed everything. And it's from that experience, and it's from that passage, passion, and it's from that knowledge of, of God and this up-close understanding of this thing that God has done, this good news of what Jesus Christ has done, that yes, this man was and is God, and yes, this man is your Savior. It's from that that John writes this letter to you and to me. The theme and the nature of which are intimacy with God. Not just knowing about God factually, but knowing God practically. Not just knowing God doctrinally, but knowing him personally and intimately. And not just God is love and God loves everyone and Jesus loves all the little children, but experiencing the transformational love of God in your own life and how that changes you, how that changes all of your relationships, and how that changes all of the people that you have influence in. And ultimately how that changes the function and the witness and the power of the church within its culture. In fact, those five times that John says, I'm writing this to you so that, or I'm proclaiming this to you so that, are the reasons that he wrote his letter. So if you like keeping the notes, here are the reasons for John's 
first letter. Here's the first one. He says, I'm writing this to you so that you can have true fellowship with God and with one another. True fellowship with God, which we're going to talk about in a moment, and with one another. When I speak of fellowship, I'm talking about belonging to God and belonging to a God community where in both there is intimacy, there is unity, there is acceptance, there is love, there is hope and encouragement and much more. There is a God and there is a God community and you belong to both of them. You're in their corner and they're in yours. It is, a, it is radically different relationship than what this world, what we before Christ uh, knew. The second reason for writing this letter is so that so that you can experience the fullness of joy in your life. The fullness of joy in your life. Not discouragement, not defeat, not constant frustration and strife, but joy. The fullness of joy despite the struggles and the trials that we go through. The third reason for writing this letter is so that you can win against sin. So that sin does not master you or win over you, but it's defeated in your life. And then the fourth reason is so that, so that you will not be deceived by lies and falsehoods, but that you can know truth and live in truth. And then the fifth reason for writing this letter, John says, I'm writing this to you, I'm proclaiming this to you, so that you can know without any doubt that you are saved so that you can know that you have eternal life no doubts but full assurance now church think with me for just a moment are there five things that you need more right now in your own life your own life than those five things true fellowship true intimacy with God the fullness of joy defeating sin in your life, the ability to be able to discern uh, error and faults from truth and the confident assurance of your salvation and all that that implicates in your life. It, are there five things that we collectively as a church, as the body of Christ, one of those God communities that, that John's talking about having fellowship with? Is there, are there five things that we need more in our lives collective and in, the, uh, and in our midst than those things, intimacy with God and unity and encouragement with one another and overflowing joy despite our, our trials, victory over sin, knowing lies from, uh, from truth and the confident assurance of our salvation. And then, right here in 2021, this day and time in this troubled, deteriorating culture in which we live, are there five more needed gifts for Christians to give to this world than fellowship with God? Does this world need fellowship with God? Does this world need joy? Does, does this world need the ability to, to overcome sin and live in a way that's pleasing to God? Does this world need the ability to see through and discern uh, a, a lie and know the truth and does this world need anything more than salvation and assurance of it that's that is only through Jesus Christ that is why 
we want to study John's first letter. So, you ready to jump in? 1 John chapter 1, this is how John begins this short letter, this short epistle. He writes, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the logos of life. It's a, the, it's a word that John uses when he opens his gospel to refer to this idea, this message, this grand thing that God was doing to save uh, creation and mankind. Here's what I want you to catch, though. Right from the beginning, when John says things that we have heard, we have seen, we have looked upon, we have touched, he's not talking about us generally as Christians. He's talking about himself and Peter and James, his brother, and James, the brother of Jesus, and that group of women and, you know, we find out in Acts 1, there was about 120 of them by the end that were faithful followers of Jesus. They saw it all. And so of these things, he says, verse 2, the life was made manifest and we have seen it. And we testify to it and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us in our presence, in our lifetimes. Verse 3, that we, that which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you. So that, so that you may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we're writing these things to you so that our joy, your joy, the joy of God's people will be complete. And so what John is doing here, he essentially is saying that the reason that he is sure for what he is proclaiming to us is because he and the other apostles saw it. This is not something they read about in a book. This is not a testimony they heard from someone else. They hung out with Jesus. They ate with him. They heard him. They touched him. They saw his miracles. They saw him dead. They saw him raised from the dead. They even touched his resurrected body to prove to themselves that it was real. I want you to understand something, that we do not have a New Testament because those disciples believed that Jesus' teaching was a superior way of understanding and making sense out of the world, though it is. And we don't have a New Testament because these disciples uh, believe that his teaching would produce a better way of living, though it does. We have a New Testament because those men and a whole lot of women witnessed firsthand the miraculous power of Jesus while he was in their presence. And ultimately, they witnessed the resurrection. And John begins this letter by saying, we saw it and we realized that you didn't see it. So we're telling you, based on our witness, based on, our, on the evidence, that the life of God is in this person, Jesus Christ, and eternal life is in Jesus Christ, and you can know him in the same way that we knew him because he is still alive. That the life of God is in Jesus Christ. And it can come into your life with Jesus. And in doing so, you can experience God's presence in your life, his power, his love, and more. And those things will make your joy complete. And in knowing him, 
in knowing him. You can have this. And this is key word, fellowship, intimacy, oneness, connection with God. So here's the word fellowship. And a lot of you have heard this before somewhere along the way. It's translated from a Greek word that we find in the New Testament called koinonia. Koinonia. That's the Greek word. And it's translated fellowship. It can also be uh, translated communion. It can be translated oneness. In some certain contexts, it can be translated generosity. Here is a general way to think of that word, okay? Uh, You can think of it like this, shared life. That's ultimately the meaning of koinonia. And And John says that we can share God's life with him, and we can share God life with one another in the body of Christ. And that's John's strange, good, but strange introduction to his letter. But I've already warned you, that's just how John writes. Then he writes this, verse 5. This is the message, or this is the logos, this word that, that John always uses. This is the message that we have heard from him and we proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. Let's hit the brakes for just a moment, and I want you to just think about this picture that, that, that John just gave us. That God is light, and in God there's no darkness at all. That's an analogy, that's a metaphor. Think about what you know about light. That light is, light is beautiful, light is cheerful, light produces energy, light gives life, light is pure, There's no such thing as dirty light. There's no such thing as dishonest light or evil light. Light reveals what otherwise cannot be seen. Light dispels darkness. Light shows the way. We could come up with probably a dozen other examples. But analogizing God to light with no trace of darkness in him, John is speaking of the moral, the ethical, the spiritual, and the relational purity of God. There is no darkness in God. None. No trace of it. He is light. He is pure. So, John says, verse 6, if we say that we have, and here's our key word again, fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie, and we do not practice the truth. But, on the other hand, If we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. Now, I want to make sure that you get what John is saying here, right? That God is light, there's no darkness in him at all. So, so if we say that we're in fellowship with God, in oneness, in shared life with him, and yet we continue to walk in darkness and sin, We're lying to ourselves. We're lying. We're not practicing truth. But if we're leaving our sin, if we're turning from our sin, if we're walking out of the darkness and walking into the light in this shared life with him, where we're we're also going to be walking in shared life with one another who are in the body of Christ who have experienced this very same grace and mercy in our lives. In fact, we collectively together, sharing 
life with each other is part of the evidence, part of the result of the cleansing blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross. He forgives sin. He takes sin away. He overcomes sin in our lives. So we who are in Christ this morning, we are a collective body of people whose sin has been overcome by the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Amen? So he says, verse 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If, if when we are sinning against God, but we say it's not sin, or we say it's not that big a deal, or we say that's just my nature, that's the way that I'm made, that's the way that I think, God just understands me the way that I am. And if we leave sin dealt undealt with, John says we are deceiving ourselves. And strong statement, strong statement. The truth is not in us. But on the other hand, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And then he has one more piece. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God a liar and his word is not in us. By the way, verse 10 characterizes the world. Verse 10 characterizes us before Christ. This world, our culture, calls things good that God calls ungodly. This world calls things woke and enlightened and acceptable that God calls sin. And John says in that case, that would make God out to be a liar, which by the way is not possible because there's no darkness in him. So in that case, his word this message of the gospel is not in that person. So that's John's opening chapter to his letter. So what does it actually mean to walk in the light and to have fellowship with God? Let's ask the question this way. What can happen walking in the light? What can happen walking in the light? I want to give you four, four things that can happen. Here's number one. I can come out of hiding. I can come out of hiding. One of the first benefits or one of the first things that can happen when I walk in the light is I can come out of hiding. After all, light reveals everything. And what was hidden in the darkness is now revealed in the light. And walking in fellowship with God, I can come out of hiding. So, you know what I'm talking about when I talk about coming out of hiding? We... You and I, human beings, have been hiding their sin since the beginning. It's the natural, sinful, human nature, human response. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, their response was to hide from God. Why? Why do we, why do we hide from God after we sin against Him? Because shame and guilt are the emotions that follow in the wake of our sin. And left to our own, when there's nothing, and you've experienced this, when there's nothing you can do to take care of your shame and your guilt, the, it, it, it's what we think is that it's best and easiest to cover it up, to put it away, to excuse it as, and I'll never do it again, or to excuse it as human nature. And, and, and listen, we not only hide our deep, dark sins, but we also hide 
our weaknesses and our insecurities and our inadequacies and our fears, those things that we don't really like about ourselves. And so the response to that is we feel the need to project a confidence that we don't really have. And we feel the need to pretend to be something or someone that we know in our hearts we're not. And what it does for us is it produces a reputation to others, but it's all exterior. And it leaves the shame and the guilt intact and and the insecurities undealt with in here, and it destroys our forward progress. And you know in the case of Adam and Eve, God already knew their sin, and yet they hid their sin from him. They were trying to keep from God what God already knew. And then when they finally confessed their sins to God, how did God respond to them? Not with more shame, not with more guilt, not harshly, not with punishment, but with amazing mercy and grace. He forgave their sin, he covered their shame, and in doing so, he was foreshadowing what Jesus was going to do for all of us on the cross. And so now, today, if you're in Christ, even with the knowledge of our sin, Jesus bore the full wrath that we deserve, he covered us with the righteousness of Christ, and we can, verse 9, confess our sins to him, agree with him, acknowledge that he calls it sin and it is and don't rationalize it or excuse it and don't stuff it away and hide in its shame rather confess it to him because he's always faithful and always just to forgive us from those sins and to cleanse us from the unrighteous emotional effects of them in fact church you realize right that if you're a belief if you're if you have new life that's in christ when you confess your sins to god You're confessing forgiven sin. It was paid for on the cross by Jesus. It hasn't changed your relationship with God. It's broken your fellowship with God. And the moment we confess it, he rushes in to bring us back into that unity, into that oneness, into that koinonia, that shared life with him. And when I walk in the light... I can come out of hiding. I can be known. I can be loved and accepted, warts and all. There is incredible freedom in not having to hide any longer. Here's the second thing that can happen when I walk in the light. I can know what God wants to deal with in my life. In the light, in the light, I'm in fellowship with God. And that clears the path for me to see and to understand from God what he wants to do in me, what he wants to work in me, how he wants to heal my broken parts, how he wants to address my insecurities, how he wants to grow me in spiritual maturity. And I just want to make sure that you understand something here. When we talk about fellowship, I know that when church people talk about fellowship, they're oftentimes talking about Christians getting together to hang out and eat something, right? And, and, and there is some degree of fellowship there. But when John speaks of fellowship with God and with each other in the body of Christ, that's not what he's talking about. John's gospel, gospel was written to lost people. You see that at the end of the letter. John's letter, 1 John, was written to saved people. We just 
read it. And so saved people are those who are already in a relationship with God. They weren't, and then they became in, in, in this relationship with God. Through my faith in Christ as the Son of God and His atoning work on the, Christ, uh, on the cross, God saved me, and when He saved me, He changed my relationship with Him from alienation and separation to reconciliation. He changed my relationship from enemy and from rebel to now becoming his son. My saved relationship is a change in my status. It's a change in my position. And that relationship is safe. It is secure. After all, God is the one who saved me. I didn't save myself. All I did was believed and expressed my faith in him. But I can be in relationship with him and not be in fellowship with him. And so can you. You can be in relationship with him, but not be in fellowship with him. Because fellowship is walking in the light as he is in the light, as John described it. And if I say that I'm in fellowship with God, but I'm stumbling around in darkness, if I'm disobeying God's will, if I'm sinning and excusing it, if I'm playing games with God about sin and His forgiveness based on 1 John 1, 9, if I'm clearly refusing to do what God has said in His Word is His will, then it is sin. And John says, I've got news for you. You're not in fellowship with God. You're lying, starting with lying to yourself. But when I walk in the light... In fellowship with God, in this united with God, oneness with God, shared life with God, the same mercy and grace he showed to Adam and Eve, he is constantly showing me. And on this side of the cross, he's used, he uses his Holy Spirit who now lives in me, the one who gave me this new life to convict me, to enlighten me, to show me what is sin and to give me the, the opportunity and the power to choose God and to deal with it. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons that Christians don't grow in spiritual maturity is because some are in relationship with God. Their position has changed from lost to saved, but they're not in fellowship with Him. They're not walking in the light. And you should ask yourself if you're in that situation, in relationship with God through his son Jesus Christ, but not in fellowship with him. If I'm walking in the light, God is revealing to me what he wants to deal with and to work on and to change. Here's a third thing that can happen in the light. This is the one I couldn't wait to get to today. Number three, I can experience God. I can experience God. I don't want you to miss this. If you're tuned out, tune back in. If you're online, you're checking your email, stop for just a second. In our church and churches like ours, we place a lot of emphasis on doctrine, and we should. In fact, the problem that John is dealing with in this letter, and we're going to touch on it in a, in a later message, begins with bad doctrine. Every behavior is connected to something that you believe. It's the same in our lives. And so what God has said in his word is truth. He has revealed himself there. He has revealed his will there, his truth there. It's in his word. And so we teach it. 
and we encourage you to study it so that you can know about God and so that we can know God's will. But listen, the doctrine is not all there is. Christianity, this relationship and fellowship with God, is also designed to be experiential. Do you know what I'm talking about? God doesn't want you to only generally know about him. He wants you to specifically know him. He he doesn't want us to just know him theologically. He wants us to know him intimately. And he doesn't want us to merely be able to explain him intellectually. He wants us to experience experience him practically. God longs for you to be in fellowship with him because that's where you can make the leap from knowing about God to knowing God. And John's point, John's argument, right from the beginning of this letter, is that this experiential knowledge of God that that he had with Jesus because Jesus was in his presence, it's now 50 or 60 years later. John writes this as a man in his 90s, and he still is having the experiential relationship. And so can we. He personally witnessed the manifestation of this life of God by being in Jesus' presence while he was on the earth. But now 60 years later, He's still experiencing the manifested life of God in his life, and so can you. We can experience God in our everyday lives. You understand what I'm saying? This truth applied, this truth playing out, this doctrine, this theology lived out in obedience and and God's power. See, John is a guy who saw those miracles that Jesus did. In fact, when he writes his gospel, he emphasizes seven of those big miracles. But what John does is he follows up with Jesus' teaching after the miracles because he realized that the miracle wasn't just about the miracle. The miracle was about a message that God was giving to mankind about the life of God. There was the miracle, it happened, but there was a message behind the miracle. For example... In John chapter 6, Jesus multiplied five barley loaves and two fishes and fed several thousand people. But then he follows up that miracle by explaining to the people that he is the bread of life and that those who come to him find a soul satisfaction that they are starving for and nothing else can satisfy. Knowing Jesus is like a starving man sitting down to a home-cooked meal. Have you ever experienced that in your life with Jesus? Have you experienced that kind of soul satisfaction? See, that doesn't make the gospel true, but it's more proof, more evidence beyond the doctrine, beyond the evidence that God is real. It is truth experienced. Has he met the deepest needs of your soul? In John chapter 4, Jesus meets the Samaritan woman at the well. He knew everything about her. He knew her deep, dirty uh, dirty secrets, and he loved her anyway. He accepted her anyway. He revealed himself to her anyway. Have you ever had a moment, or two, or three, or five, or six, where you've experienced the same thing, where you were over? 
overwhelmed by the love of God for you. You're not reading it from the pages of the Bible. You're not hearing it in a story from somebody else. But you yourself are swept away and amazed that God loves you that way. See, that's the experience of a relationship, being in fellowship with God. I'll give you one more. In Mark chapter 4, Jesus is out at sea with his disciples and there's a terrible storm raging all around them and they're terrified and they wake him and they say, don't you care? We're going to die in the storm. And Jesus stands up and he says, peace, be still. And everything is calmed down. Has that ever happened to you? Where Jesus has come in and stilled the storm in your life. And maybe even better than that, he didn't still the storm, but he stilled you. And you just knew that you were standing in the presence of your Savior and that he was there and it was all under his control. And there's story after story like that in the New Testament. Has it ever happened to you? Does it happen to you? Where where you're regularly experiencing intimacy with God, not just data, not just information about him, but his presence in your life, his experience in your life. Listen, it's about knowing. It's about more than knowing facts about God. It's knowing God and growing to know him more and more and more and more. It's, It's It's experiencing him in your life. Doctrine applied. Theology played out. And experiencing his power, his presence, his love, his acceptance, his rescue, his peace, his healing, and on and on. That's what can happen when we're in fellowship with God. And dear child of God, you need the God experiences in your life. The doctrine is not enough. You need the experience in your life. It happens in fellowship. And I will tell you, as a guy, we, as a couple, the times that I, the times that we have grown the most and seen God were not the times that we achieved something intellectually. It's not when I got my degree. It's not when I became a pastor. It's not when I put together a well-planned fancy sermon series. It's when I experienced the presence and the power of God in my life. That's when we grow. It only happens walking in the light. And here's the fourth and final thing that can happen when we walk in the light. I can be sure. I can be sure that I belong to God. And we're going to revisit this a few times in this series, but from time to time, you know, your, your life will challenge your faith. And that is true for all of us. And you're going to need that assurance. You're going to need the confidence that you are God and he is yours. Do you live with that kind of assurance? Are its implications playing out, guiding your life and your decisions that you're making? Because if you're walking in the light and shared life with God, he's going to make sure that you know. He's going to make sure that you have the confidence to know and to know that you know. I want you to just bow your heads and close your eyes. I want to pray for you just now. What is it that you need this morning? Is it fellowship with your heavenly father? Is that what's missing? You're in the relationship, you know that, but you're not in fellowship. 
You're not walking in the light. Here's his invitation to you. You can, first John, confess your sins to him. He's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from the emotional, uh, unrighteous aspects and results of that. Is it joy? Is it joy to replace discouragement, strife, or struggle? It's found in Jesus. You can come out of your hiding, your sin or your shame or your inadequacies or whatever it is. You're loved anyway. Your sin has been paid for. You are accepted. That should make your soul smile right now. Is it victory over sin? Is it discernment to separate truth from lies? Is it the assurance of your salvation? It's all found in the light, walking in the light in fellowship with God. Is your need today to give your life to Jesus as Lord, as Savior, to begin the relationship today? To come from separation and alienation into reconciliation with God through the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. Here's how you do it. You can make it real by putting your faith in Jesus, trusting him, believing him. He is the son of God. His death on the cross was to take the punishment for your sin. He's risen from the dead and he's alive. And if you call out to him in prayer and ask him to come into your life, to you tell him, I'm going to I'm going to turn from trusting in myself. I'm going to turn from sin. I want to put all of my faith and my trust in you, and I'm going to follow you. He will come in. He will save you. He will give you new life. You will begin the relationship, and you can have the fellowship. And when you walk in the light as he is in the light, incredible things happen when you experience the presence and the power and the love and the healing and the direction and the encouragement, and the hope, and and the eternal life, all those things that Jesus gives. Father, thank you for your word, for its truth, its power. Thank you, God, that you love us. Thank you, Father, that you offer people like us. We don't deserve to be saved, but you do it anyway because you love us. We deserve a penalty. for We deserve your punishment. We We deserve your judgment upon our sins. But Christ came because of your love and your grace and and offered his death in our place. He rose from the dead, something none of us can do on our own. And now, God, you save us in a relationship. And then after the relationship, you don't just change our position. You bring us into fellowship, into oneness, into shared life with you. God, that's what you want. That's the game changer. That's the revolution. Do that in the lives of people today. Save someone today, Lord. Finally, today's their day to put their faith and their trust in you, to be born again, to receive this new life in Christ. I pray that for them in Jesus' name.